This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security for May 1st, 2020. Coronavirus tracking apps from big tech make Americans wary as Apple prepares to release its COVID-19 exposure notification API and what Apple may have learned about password sharing from Netflix and Hulu. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long. Hey, Josh, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Kirk? I'm okay. Have you gotten any funny text messages with like an Italian flag and some Cindy characters? Do you know what Cindy characters are? Yeah, I, I know what you're referring to because there's this new thing that's going around. Uh, it's it's yet another one of these text strings that can be shared with anybody and cause their device to crash just by receiving that message on your device. Um, we've seen this a number of times uh, over the past few years, which it makes it kind of surprising that this kind of thing still happens. I it, it's almost unfathomable to me that with a device with an operating system that's as sophisticated and well-designed and security, you know, thoughtful as iOS is, that we can still have a string of text characters that can cause a device to crash. That's crazy to me. But what exactly happens here? Is it just that text in a certain language can cause a crash? I mean, what about people who are using that language to send texts already, because we saw a different one of these with the Telugu language a couple of years ago. And why is it a specific string of characters? It, is it any character? I don't understand why it happens. Yeah, it's, it's sort of a bizarre thing. And I'm not exactly sure why these particular combinations of characters are causing these issues. But one thing that seems to be fairly common from one to the other is that um, a, a lot of these languages have characters that can be combined and stacked on top of each other. And maybe it's something to do with the parsing of uh, of those kinds of characters that causes this, this issue. But it is very strange. <laughs> Uh, um, you know, that just receiving messages like this can sometimes cause your device to crash. Now, Apple, what is Apple doing about this? They already have a beta version of iOS that fixes this. Uh, and so, you know, if you're willing to run beta software, you could upgrade. But uh, honestly, I don't think it's very likely that you're going to come across something like this in the wild. Maybe if you have a prankster friend who really likes to crash iPhones, you know, then yeah, maybe you should update to the beta. But other than that, I wouldn't worry about it too much. It's not really a security vulnerability. It's not known to um, create, you know, some sort of device instability that could lead to further hacks or anything like that. This is just a, a crashing issue. Right. So all you have to do is restart your device and hope that you don't get another one of these messages. Right. It's an annoyance. Yeah. Technically, it's a denial of service. Yeah. Um, meaning that you can't use something, but it's just an annoyance. Right. So last week, we talked about a vulnerability in iOS that apparently allowed hackers to infiltrate iPhones and other iOS devices for more than a year. I'm quoting from a Bloomberg article, link in the show notes. Um, Apple has come out and say, well, we've got no evidence that hackers have exploited this flow. 
Yeah. Well, so what, what I find amusing about this story that, that, you know, Apple's statement about this is okay, but would you necessarily have the information that someone had exploited it, right? I mean, you would have to know that somebody exploited it to say that you know that somebody's exploited it. <laughs> and I don't know how Apple would necessarily know that. Whereas ZecOps is claiming that, well, we have clients who have been, exp- who have had their devices exploited through this vulnerability. So we know it happens. But Apple's like, yeah, but we don't know it happens. That's just what you say. So it's sort of like, okay, come on, Apple. Well, like the previous bug, uh, this is fixed in the latest beta version of iOS. And I think we're going to see a, a release of iOS 13.5 pretty soon because this is the first version of iOS that has the COVID-19 exposure notification. We discussed this briefly uh, last week or the week before. Uh, essentially, if it works with Bluetooth and if two people are in close proximity, um, their phones will exchange anonymous identifiers. If one person had been diagnosed with COVID-19 and they've told their device, then their device can send a list of everyone they've been in touch with up to the cloud. So essentially, this is for contact tracing, um, that if you've tested positive, you alert people and your phone's going to alert people who are near you. By the way, I think it's kind of interesting that Apple and Google are, instead of calling this contact tracing, they're now calling it exposure notification, because I think they're a little bit shy about the idea of it being called tracing, you know, because that already sounds like they're dancing around calling it contact tracking or location tracking or something. Um, And so now it's like, well, you know, actually tracing sounds a little bit too much like tracking. So we're just going to refer to this as exposure notification because that sounds better. It doesn't sound like so much of a privacy violation. But yeah, so so iOS 13.5, the second beta, public beta is available. So again, if you want to install a beta, you can do that. But uh, yeah, for this particular reason, I don't think there's that much reason to do it just yet. Well, you're still going to need an app that takes advantage of this. Right. And different countries are going to have different apps. Um, So this is is basically an API to work with an app. What I find interesting is that, at least in the beta, this is turned on by default. Now, I would expect something like this, and it's not clear, I haven't installed the beta. Uh, I would expect something like this, when you update, you get a very clear screen asking if you want to turn this on. Or like with Siri, um, Siri is on, and if you don't want Siri on, you turn it off. So maybe it'll be an opt-out, but it should be clear. And and it's not clear about people who've updated to the beta, whether they get enough information about that. I think they're going to have to give very clear information about this. I would think so. Yeah. From a privacy perspective, I mean, it it makes sense that they would um, maybe have it opt in by default, but put up a screen, as you say, when you upgrade to the latest version of iOS, where it invites you to uh, to continue with this feature enabled, and then you can choose to opt, you know, or I guess technically it is opt out then at that point, but it, it, but if it puts it up in your face with the default option of it being enabled, that is going to promote greater adoption, which I think is kind of important here because I've seen some reports that claim that you need 60 or 60 some percent uh, penetration across the the world or across a certain geographic region anyway, for this to really be effective. 
Right. We'll link to an article in The Washington Post that says Americans are wary of the coronavirus tracking apps being produced by big tech. And they say that uh, currently about 40 percent of Americans are on board with using the tracking apps. And that's far lower than the approximately 60 percent needed. So these apps can make a significant difference in slowing infections. You know, they've trained us to not trust them, right? With the exception of Apple, who tends to be a lot more proactive about privacy. But all these other companies, particularly Google, have trained us to be wary of them. And and here we are in a crisis. I think they're going to need a lot of communication. Even if they say to us, it's going to be totally anonymous, even if they say you can turn it off, can we really trust that? And, and I'm being a little bit devil's advocate because personally, I wouldn't not turn this on. This is too big a crisis um, to start playing with things like that. But I understand why people don't trust these companies. Right. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, you know, I, I don't know if I mentioned before, but, I, you know, I have family members who with immune deficiencies. And so it's very important to me to make sure that I'm doing everything that I can to keep my family members safe. And so, you know, this is definitely a feature I would turn on. I'm, I'm concerned about privacy, but at the same time, I want to make sure that uh, I'm staying safe and keeping my family safe as well. So from that perspective, I'm personally of the opinion that uh, you should turn this on unless you really, really think that there's some really important reason not to, because you're helping protect other people. It's good to know if you've potentially been exposed, because then it'll make you think more carefully about your interactions with other people for, you know, for the next couple of weeks until you know whether you uh, have become infected or not. Okay, it's time for this week's Zoom Zinger. We actually have two. One of them is pretty minor, but one I find interesting. Um, This is an article in The Independent, which is a British newspaper. Financial Times reporter accessed private calls at Independent and Evening Standard. The Evening Standard is another newspaper. A media correspondent eavesdropped on Zoom meetings as staff were told sensitive news of pay cuts and furloughs during the pandemic. Now, what's interesting here, if you've been on Zoom calls with two or three people, you know what it's like. You see a couple of faces in the top and you see the one in the bottom. But if you've been on a Zoom call with a lot of people, there's so many of them in the top that you just lose track of who they are. So this person came in with the video off, so it only had a black square. It was an anonymous account, and probably no one paid attention to it. Um, They later discovered it was a Financial Times reporter who's been neither fired or suspended. This is one of the risks of Zoom, that anyone, if you have a big meeting, people can come in, and it's really hard to know if they belong in that meeting. Well, yeah, that's exactly true. Um, And you may not necessarily know all the names of every for for an organization like this, right, Um, where you have maybe several reporters who are joining the call. um, There might be a lot of people on a meeting like this, and you may not immediately recognize that, oh, that person doesn't work for us or or is not currently working for us. You know, Um, a lot of journalists work for multiple publications. And so it might, even if it's a name you recognize, and you might think, oh, doesn't that person work for, you know, this other media outlet? Well, I, I guess maybe they're working for us too. You know, they could be writing also for uh, for our, our website or our organization. So uh, it's one of those things that can be a little bit tricky. And so I, I think the important takeaway here is that if you are having business meetings like this, it's good to make sure that any information that is discussed is of a nature that you would be comfortable with the general public knowing about it. 
Well, but these meetings are definitely not going to be for the general public. So the the issue here is more that if you're running one of these meetings, you need to be very careful to make sure that you're vetting who's in the meetings. Well, right. One or the other. I mean, if if you if it's of, of a sensitive nature, then yes, you absolutely need to be very careful about um, who is on the call. And if you don't recognize somebody who should be on the call, um, then, you know, don't allow them in the call. Um, but, uh, if, if it's a larger meeting, I don't know how many total people were on this call, but I suspect that there were probably more people than it would necessarily make sense to like really carefully look at a, a large list and decide, okay, this person should be in the call. This person should not. But if it was of a sensitive nature, well, you know, I, 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 I do think, especially with all everything that all that's been in the news about Zoom and about Zoom bombing and all this kind of thing, I would think that people would be a little bit more careful about talking about sensitive topics if they haven't carefully vetted all the people who are on the call at that present time. Okay, very quickly, what a difference a word can make. Uh, it turns out that Zoom had to admit that they don't have 300 million users correcting misleading claims, according to The Verge. Uh, they had 300 million participants. There's a big difference between daily active users and daily meeting participants. Um, all of the uh, websites like Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, they talk about daily active users or monthly active users. These are metrics of how sticky their services are. Um, Zoom had come out and said they had 300 million daily active users which means people with accounts. Well, it's actually the number of people participating in meetings. In that, in that previous meeting we were just talking about, there were 100 or 200 people. Um, so they've corrected the one word in their blog post to change from users to participants. Not a big deal, but you just can't trust Zoom, can you? <laughs> I, I, personally, I think this is like, uh, this is really fishing for, for things to, to say negative about Zoom. But okay, sure. Yeah, they made a mistake. They updated their blog post to correct it. And then uh, because people are looking at Zoom with, you know, Hawkeye lenses right now, they're, they're finding these things. And I, personally, this particular one I don't think is that big of a deal. And and by the way, Zoom did release uh, updates to their software this past week that implemented some of these uh, positive security changes that uh, have they've been saying that they're going to implement. You know, AES two fifty six bit uh, encryption and, and a couple of other features uh, that they've been saying that they're going to implement. So they're doing certain things right, and they are making up, I think, in some ways for um, the, you know, <laughs> relative lack of security that they had in recent weeks. Okay, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to explain another reason why you shouldn't share your Apple ID. If you or someone you know has got a new MacBook or iMac or switched to the Mac from Windows, be sure to check out Intego's new Mac User Center. It's a one-stop collection of the things you'll need to know about using your Mac. Intego's new Mac User Center covers plenty of the basics to get you running smoothly and smartly in no time. Of course, one of the first steps you'll want to take is to install Mac security software from Intego to keep yourself protected. And right now, Intego Mac Podcast listeners can get 40% savings on Intego software, including Mac Premium Bundle X9. Mac Premium Bundle X9 is a suite of terrific Intego software that includes the antivirus, anti-phishing, and anti-spyware protection of Intego Virus Barrier, home and hotspot firewall security from Intego Net Barrier, 
parental controls for peace of mind from Intego Content Barrier, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today, and then use the promo code PODCAST20 at checkout to save 40%. That's PODCAST20 to save 40% on complete Mac protection and security with Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9. Intego, devoted to protecting Apple products since 1997. Visit Intego.com today. Okay, I just want to toss out something here. Um, The number of the day is 900. 900 is how many megabits per second I get on my internet now. You may recall I had Victorian internet for years, and I got fiber to the property at 300 megabits last year, and they just upped it to 910, which I think is gigabit, but you know the hundred, the you know the thing of a thousand versus a thousand twenty-four. I think they don't want to call it a gigabit. Um, so it's actually really easy now for me to like stream movies in 4K on Apple TV Plus, for example. There are a lot of people in the world, I think, who would be lucky to have anywhere near that kind of internet speed. The reason I mentioned that is because we want to talk about why you shouldn't share your Apple ID, in particularly so a friend can watch Apple TV Plus. Uh, before the show, we were discussing the whole Apple TV Plus story, how it came out, I think, November or December. It was a couple of series with well-known people. And then there hasn't been much new content lately. But one thing that's interesting about Apple TV, unlike, say, Netflix, come on, admit it, I'm sure half of you have shared your Netflix password with someone, a friend, significant other, so they can watch on your subscription. You can't do that with Apple TV+. Plus. Um, your Apple ID is, like, really important. It's the key to everything, your iCloud account and, and all of your data, maybe your email. With Apple devices, you do have a possibility of using two different Apple IDs, one for your iCloud account and one for the iTunes store and the App Store and all the rest. So you could presumably go to your kid's laptop and sign in to the iTunes store or Apple TV Plus or something like that with the particular Apple ID. But, you know, if you do that, that means that they can buy things from the store. You wouldn't want to do that, would you? Well, I I think the thing to be aware of is is sharing passwords. That that's kind of the main issue here. And because Apple IDs uh generally I think I don't know if it's in every circumstance, but I know in in most circumstances it seems like they are requiring two-factor authentication. If nothing else, they do alert you on your other devices when you're trying to sign in with your Apple ID on a different device. So they're they're sort of... Right, because you need to get a code from a different device to authenticate. Exactly, yeah. They want to make sure, essentially, that uh, if you're signing in on a new device, that you are the same person who has access to your other device that's already been confirmed. And and so that's Apple's general way of doing this, um, you know, two-factor authentication or two-step verification. They're they're making sure that you really are who you say you are. We've mentioned before that there are sometimes scammers who will try to exploit this and trick people into, you know, um, allowing them to have access to their device by uh, notifying that person, hey, you're about to get this prompt. You know, it might be a fake tech support call or something like this, but they'll say, you're about to get this prompt, so make sure you do this so that I can have access to your account. 
with with the uh you know disguise of it being some sort of um helpful thing that they're trying to do for you. The Apple TV Plus question is kind of interesting and we were also discussing before the show about the lack of new content on Apple TV Plus. Have you watched anything on the service? Uh not not recently. I mean I I watched a few episodes of a, of two or three shows when it first came out. Um I know that they are still working on some new content. Um you know, well, they're not working on much right well, now, are they? <laughs> I mean, they're working on, I guess, preparing to release some content that has previously been recorded. Right. But, uh, but yeah, it's, I mean, I, I don't know really what to expect from Apple TV Plus. It feels like, on the one hand, you've got all these people who are saying, you know, Apple made a real big mistake here, you know, investing all this money. People were saying this right from the start, you know, Apple spending tons and tons of money to try to get people into this subscription service. And there's just not that much content. And then you've got uh, people on the other side of the aisle, though, who who are, are pointing fingers at Apple and saying, you know, but how, you know, what, what's the purpose of this? Because you, you, you just don't have enough content. And so it's like, well, which is it? Do you want them to spend more money to produce more content? Or do you want them to, you know, produce content and have lots of content on their service? And now with the coronavirus, um, it, it's, uh, I'll link to an article in 9to5Mac. It's believed that the company had not completed filming on upcoming seasons of The Morning Show for All Mankind and Servant. And The Morning Show was a bit the marquee series. Uh, I actually thought For All Mankind was much better. But if they're not going to have any new content uh, come the fall, who's going to want to pay for a subscription? Because we're, we're all using the free subscription we got with our iPhone purchase or whatever. And so this article also talks about the fact that um, Disney Plus is moving some theatrical releases and exploiting their back catalog. Uh, you know, a- Apple came into this in-, in a market that's usually competitive with the big players being uh, Netflix and Amazon Prime Video, the smaller players like Hulu and others, but that are really limited to the States. We don't have anything here, or the equivalent of Hulu. Um, we do have the BBC iPlayer, so we can watch BBC content and that's free. Uh, but Disney Plus came out and what did they get? 60 million people signing up in the first week or something? And why would anyone even want to pay for Apple TV plus? Well, that's exactly the thing is that, um, and I, by the way, I do think it's very interesting that it's Disney plus and Apple TV plus. It seems like somebody might've been, um, uh, taking the idea from somebody else. But, um, yeah, I mean with, with Apple TV plus, if you don't haven't reached recently purchased a device, it's five bucks a month, which is, I mean, it's not, it's not terrible, a but yeah. I, I mean, if you, if there, there's not a lot of new content where you have $5 worth of content every month to watch, let's say, you know, you've been binge watched, you know, a few of the popular shows, all the ones that you wanted to see. Now there's nothing or, or very little over the next year until, you know, the renewal period. Um, and do you really want to be spending five bucks a month after that, after you've gotten your free year from purchasing a new device? I think one of the reasons that Apple probably did it this way is they want you to be buying a new iPhone or some new Apple device every year so that you can perpetually get a free subscription to Apple TV+. Plus. But we don't know that they're going to continue it with the next iPhone. That, but that's true. You would expect them to. Or as we discussed once in the past, maybe there's going to be a bundle of subscription services. And people have been talking about this for a while. 
you know, Apple Prime or something. So you get Apple Music, you get Apple TV Plus, you maybe get Apple Arcade, which is the game service. Uh, maybe you get some extra iCloud storage. I mean, st- still five gigabytes of iCloud storage when you buy a device, or even if you have three or four devices of your own. So it's hard to figure out what the game plan is for Apple TV. But one thing that I've noticed recently is um, even this week, when I went to look at the 99 cent rental of a week um, on the iTunes store for movie rentals, I tapped it and it took me into the TV app. This was on my iPhone. And I rented a movie a couple of weeks ago and it took me into the TV app. So it's as if they're trying to get you from the iTunes store into the TV app, but not for everything. It, it only happens with some of them. And my thought is, um, and I thought from the beginning that the, the, the end game of Apple TV Plus is to take as much iTunes store content as possible and provide it on a monthly uh, subscription basis. It's similar to Apple Music. Obviously, it wouldn't be new movies. It might not be all back catalog, but this could be where they're going because Netflix, you know, it took them a while to make original content and original content's only a small part of what they've got. Um, the same with Amazon. But as long as Apple doesn't have a back catalog, there's really not much interest in paying for it. Well, then that's really, I think, where the other services shine, especially Disney, because, I mean, hello, Disney's been producing content longer than just about anybody, right? Um, And especially now that they've acquired all of these other companies, they've got Fox, they've got several different companies all underneath that same Disney banner, National Geographic, Marvel, Star Wars. These are huge, huge properties that have a lot of fan interest. Um, Whereas Apple just kind of came out with a bunch of, you know, a, a small really number of original series. And because they're all original series, they're relying almost entirely on getting some good reviews and and people being really interested in the particular stars that they've got in these series. Um, so it, it's it's a very interesting perspective. And I, I think that what you're saying about Apple maybe ultimately having the idea that they were going to add in uh, some other content besides the things that they're producing. I'm not sure about that. I mean, Apple, I don't think they've really ever said that they would do something like that. It's sort of almost implied that Apple TV Plus is specifically like content that we're producing. But but that would sort of strengthen the Apple TV Plus brand if they're able to bring in content that people are already familiar with that they'd be interested in getting more of or, or getting back access to. But if Apple were to make that, that shift I think at this point, there would be a lot of um, press, you know, sort of complaining about it and saying, ah, well, clearly Apple TV Plus wasn't doing very well because now Apple's decided to go the back catalog route instead. Yeah, good point. Well, what if Apple just buys Disney? You know, that that would be really cool <laughs> from several perspectives. Apple I can think. certainly afford it. And didn't Tim Cook say sometime last year to that there might be some big acquisition coming? <laughs> I don't know. Didn't he tease something like that in Did some he? earnings call? Maybe not. Um, but Apple has so much money, they could probably buy Disney quite easily and, and still have enough left over. That's crazy you know, to, to make imagine. another iPhone. But but I, I, I love the idea. It? I mean, the link between Steve Jobs and Pixar mm-hmm. and, you know, there are so many connections between the companies. And in many ways, Disney is probably 
the film production company that is closest to Apple's ethos. Yes. You know, the sort of family-friendly stuff. Exactly, right. And and that's one of the things that I think, um, you know, a lot of people feel like was holding Apple TV Plus back. I disagree because, I, you know, I like family-friendly content. And I, I think there's a lot of really good stuff uh, that Apple TV has been working on. I, I, I like that kind of content. Okay, we're going to keep our eyes on this in particular because we don't know if the iPhone 12 is going to be delayed. Reports suggest that it will be by a month. And of course, this brings up all the issues of people who are on the upgrade program who can upgrade after 12 months and are expecting a new phone. And if they get one after 13 months, then a year later, will they get one after 11 months? And I think Apple is going to just have to be really flexible about this. I think a lot's going to happen this fall, depending on where we are. Um, with this pandemic, depending on where we are with the economy, uh, I think a lot of these things are going to be filtered out. You know, there's no content being produced. I'm sure that all the movie studios have drawers full of movies that they were just like sitting on to never release. And now I think we're going to start seeing some of them released. Um, so the end of the year will be interesting. You know, that James Bond movie, we don't know when it's coming out. There have been some movies that have been released, uh, rented online for $20. Are we going to see more of this? Because people aren't going to be rushing to movie theaters uh, anytime soon. Yeah, that's a really good point. In fact, there's a whole bunch of movies that uh, some have been rescheduled for later in the year, tentatively, of course. And but but there's a whole bunch of other movies that were supposed to come out this summer or even, you know, uh, late summer, early fall that have been postponed indefinitely. They don't have release dates at this point. So it will be really interesting to see what ultimately happens with that and, uh, you know, whether they decide to go the route of releasing it, uh, you know, for anybody to watch from home for maybe a little bit higher price than a movie ticket. Uh, you know, so the family can watch it together or something like that. But uh, yeah, um, all all of these things are, it's, it's really interesting to see everything that's going on in the world right now. And um, we just hope that our, our listeners, that you're in a, in a good situation with your health and your family life and job, financial security and all that. Um, we know this is a really hard time for a lot of people right now. And so, you know, we, we definitely wish everybody the best. Okay, with that in mind, Josh, stay secure. All right, stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the online show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software. Intego.com.